Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 42 of the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang, and my guest today is Paul Hunter, legendary music video director, commercial director, screenwriter, and co-founder of the acclaimed production company Pretty Bird. Spanning over two decades, Paul has directed over 100 music videos, helping to define and redefine the genre. Some of his most memorable projects include the notorious B.I.G.'s Hypnotize, which was MTV's best rap video, D'Angelo's How Does It Feel, MTV's best R&B video, and Christina Aguilera's Lady Marmalade, which won Video of the Year. He's also done videos for, you ready? Here we go. Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, Beyonce, Whitney Houston, Dr. Dre, TLC, Aaliyah, Madonna, U2, Justin Timberlake, Will Smith, Gwen Stefani, Marilyn Manson, Lenny Kravitz, Jennifer Lopez, and LL Cool J. Recently, his video for Pharrell's Freedom was nominated for Best Music Video at the Grammys. In 2008, Paul co-founded Pretty Bird. The company has been responsible for some of the most high-profile and renowned work of the past decade, in the process earning Grammys, Emmys, DNAD Awards, and Cannes Lions. Creativity named Pretty Bird its Production Company of the Year in 2015. Some of Paul's greatest hits as a commercial director include Nike Freestyle, Burger King's Stuff of Legends, the Grammy promo for Straight Outta Compton featuring Dr. Dre and Ice Cube, as well as global campaigns for Sony, Adidas, Apple, Audi, and Microsoft. He's directed classic T-Mobile Super Bowl spots starring both Drake and Kim Kardashian. He is an innovator, a groundbreaker, and an industry icon. This is the legendary Paul Hunter and I talking to ourselves. So let's let's start here, man. I am seeing your face for the first time in 15 years, just under 15 years. Uh, but you you have a really special place in my heart. You were the first director I ever got to work with on the first two projects I sold as a junior copywriter, making $35,000 a year. You kidding me? Really? Yeah. Uh, the first was a Volkswagen campaign. The second was a Burger King spot with Diddy. Uh, right. And you were the first person I saw and just like thought to myself, this is what a director is supposed to look like and sound like. And, uh, so those are my first two productions and I'm at Paul Hunter's house and I'm, you know, up in the Hills surrounded by all these platinum plaques and I'm playing in your weekly basketball game and I'm grilling out with the Hughes brothers and I'm like, yo man, I have made it. So my first thank you to you is thank you for giving me the first ever feeling of, yo, I made it. <laughs> I don't know about that, man, but I appreciate it. What was the, uh, what was the Volkswagen spot? The Volkswagen campaign, you'll recall it was, uh, it was like four or five spots and it debuted a Wilco album. And it was just sort of like five little, very Volkswagen-y vignettes of, you know, a, a couple in their car and something. You don't remember any of this shit. You've directed so many things. I, I, was, I do, but there was, uh, there was safety dance and there was safety engineers. I remember that one. The second thank you I'll say before we get started here. And I don't expect you to remember this, but while I was on this 40-day production, your weekly basketball game moved from your backyard to this local high school. And so Amir and I drove and met you at this high school and you had, you know, a, a bunch of your production guys all show up to this game and different people. And I get out of the car and I just happen to be wearing this bright red shirt and you're standing on the curb waiting for us. And um, upon getting out of the car, I look around and every dude who's mingling around this gym is wearing blue bandanas. <laughs> and I'm realizing I've, ro I've rolled into crypt territory dressed like the fucking Kool-Aid man. And then you look around and just with that subtle Paul Hunter look, you kind of make eye contact with like 10 guys in two seconds. 
and you non-verbally communicate to these guys like, yo, this guy is an idiot. He does not know what he's doing right now. So the second thank you is for saving my life. What, where the high school is at? Man, I don't remember. I thought I was hoping you might. Someplace in LA? Yeah. Okay. That's all good, man. <laughs> so we start every episode in the same place. Paul Hunter, where are you from? And what did your parents do? Oh, wow. I'm from a lot of places. Uh, I was born in Vallejo, California, and grew up in, then you all, you want to get the quick story? So I was born in Vallejo, spent a little bit of time in the Bay Area, Richmond, Oakland area, then moved down to the San Fernando Valley, bounced over in the South Central, back up to the Bay Area, Richmond, Oakland, and then back down to the San Fernando Valley. Uh, my dad was a truck driver, uh, ex-con, and my mom uh, did uh, bookkeeping, you know, a little plumbing company, and then she did uh, some bookkeeping for uh, for me once I started working. So it's kind of, that's it. You that's, had mom on the payroll. That's the short story. What did, uh, what did 12-year-old Paul Hunter want to be when he grew up? I wanted to be uh, an architect. You know, I love drawing. I love, you know, drawing houses and, you know, dreaming about what, you know, what I could make. And, uh, you know, I was really into that. I loved astronomy. And, uh, yeah. Man, you really didn't follow your dreams at all, did you? (laughs) Well, you know, what's crazy is uh, around that time, you know, 11, 12, I was just I was just talking to this uh, uh, this DP the other day, and we kind of had the similar experiences uh, growing up. Where I remember driving up and down the street and seeing television productions, and it was always in the back of my mind. I thought that was something, you know, cool, and you know, I would just always see it and never thought that I would end up in this. What was uh, what was maybe your first foray into the world of production? Um, Actually, it wasn't. It was my brother who was interested. He was doing. Uh, he was. He was always interested in doing, you know, commercials and plays and stuff like that. My younger brother, and I. At the time, I was working in as a tool salesman in the aerospace business. I was selling cutting tools, man. And uh, you know, my brother got a, a job on a Pepsi commercial. We were living in. We were living in Lakeview Terrace, uh, which at the time. Well, you know, later on that same uh, street uh, that we lived off of Foothill, that's where Rodney King, you know, got beat down. Mm-hmm. So that was like in that area where, where I was living at the time. And um, he, got a, he got a call to be in the Joe Pica spot. And, you know, so I followed him down there after work one day and just watched Joe film for, you know, for days. And, you know, it just, it's crazy, dude, because before that, I used to, I was into photography. I used to take photography classes in school and, and it, it even got to the point where I couldn't even afford film for the, for the cameras. And I would just take photos and imagine it, you know, the photos. And I kind of was just always excited about photography. I mean, I started photography, dude, you know, like, you know, seventh grade, eighth, ninth, you know, all the way up through high school. It was always struggling because I couldn't get, you know, couldn't develop the film or buy the film. 
So um, when I saw, I had a little money. I had a little little money, you know. By the time my brother was doing a spot, and at least enough to develop, you know, film. And I saw uh, Joe directing this Pepsi spot, dude, and I just started crying. It's like overwhelming, like crazy emotional. Just, I just like it just became like uh, crystal clear uh, what I was supposed to do because he, even though he had this, you know, this big ass 35 with all this stuff, you know, wrapped around it, I watched him build it from scratch, you know, and he was super hands-on and all of his, you know, systems, they were super hands-on and they were lining up the shot. I was like, man, that's the, that's what I do, man. It's the same thing. It's no different. It's just a bunch of, you know, it's a lot more crew, but it's the same thing. So I, I just, you know, I, I talked to him. And he just goes, go to school, man. Go to film school. Learn it. So shifted gears and went to CSUN. And you get out of film school and uh, do you just start working as a grip or you start working on sets? Uh, well, when I was in school, um, you know, I would just work on, while I was in school doing projects, I would work, you know, as a PA. Right. And, um, you know, just work on different jobs, working on, you know, NWA videos and all types of videos. Was there an artist or a video in particular that felt like it put you on? Yeah, there was a few of them. It was a combination of a few. Um, I, uh, there was an Aaliyah video, One in a Million, and... Um, you know, she gave me a shot. I had worked with her on a side project or a smaller video that she was doing a tribute video to Marvin Gaye. And then she gave me her first single on her on her album that she was releasing. And that, that turned out pretty good. Photography was strong. And then uh, from there, um, Erica Badu, on and on. And that was, to me, that was that was a perfect project because <clears throat> she, you know, she's a really good actress and a great performer and a really great uh, collaborator, you know, really beautiful and was just open just to trying different stuff. Whereas before just rewinding back to when I was PAing, I felt like a lot of the stuff was, you know, that, that I was working on was just, you know, having seen like stuff done in commercials, like watching like pick a shoot Michael Jackson and lining up sets and making things look beautiful and cinematic. And then jumping over to, you know, the hip, the hip hop stuff. And I just felt like it was just grimy, you know? Right. And I was like, man, you could put some better lighting in there. You can, you can back the camera up and make it look more photographic. And so I always had that in the back of my mind. So when I got a chance to actually start shooting, especially with black artists, in my mind, I was thinking I wanted to elevate, lift it, make them look like superstars. And so I always approached, uh, I tried to at least approach the projects that way to at least take it to another level. So with like with Erica, you know, she talked about, you know, I want to, you know, I want to sort of do, do a story like a Cinderella story, color purple, you know, and I'm a huge Spielberg fan. So as we started, um, you know, developing the, the idea and 
you know, it just crystallized. And it was crazy because we shot it at the Disney Ranch and early in the morning and the sun just, on our very first shot, I remember I felt like this was going to happen. The sun just peeked over the mountain we were shooting east and the sunlight just like ripped right down the middle of the set, right when we had uh, this like sort of wide steady cam shot going on. Our director had these feathers and he was like floating it. And the wind, dude, the wind just moved the feathers like just beautifully into the frame. We did that long steady cam shot into the house. I just felt it. And I was like, this thing is going to work. You know, you talked about the, con- the, you know, sort of concepting the idea with her. It was a question I had for you about, you know, when you're approached about a video, is it like advertising where the artist comes to you and he or she has a basic concept in your head, in, in their head, and your job is to sort of present a vision of it? Or is it ever you sort of originating the concept from scratch and, and pitching it to them? It depends. You know, it's, that's, a, <clears throat> that's a really good converse- question because... It is a lot like advertising in a way where you have you have the music artists who you know, they're they're building an, a concept around their album of who they are as an artist, and so the music is sort of based on that. And then whatever they want to talk about visually that lines up with the what the album is about, you know, is important, and it has to be in sync. So a lot of my approach to doing music videos is really sort of to build from the truth of where the artist is coming from. And a lot of times that doesn't line up to what my personal views are, what my personal aesthetics are, you know, in terms of like, if I'm shooting a, if I'm shooting a a rap artist and he wants to sort of, and they want to build sort of their visual around growing up in the neighborhood, I have to be true to that. Even though I felt like, you know what, can I push it to another level? Can we bring some, you know, sort of, surreal moments into the storytelling can you know we bring you know make it feel like a, a movie as opposed to a music video so that that was the sort of thing that i would try to bring to it but it always started from the core sort of the core thought of or inspiration of what the music was about or why i was inspired and i go back to you know i grew up going to a pentecostal church and singing in the choir, playing drums, and I've been a part of like, with the church, and I've, I've been a part of seeing how like, with work, the choir director, and this is like when I was in, living in the Bay Area, when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, 13, 14, breaking down a James Cleveland record, and going, okay, tenors first, altos, sopranos, all right, now let's get the organ, the Hammond organ, let's get the drums, let's, and layering it up, and feeling that, feeling that spirit, you know, when you're singing it on a Sunday. So my thought was when the music artists, like the Mary J. Blige's and, you know, the artists, when you feel them, it's the same thing. It's the same. So a lot lot of times I would meet artists and I'd go, where'd you grow up? How'd you grow up? Where'd you learn how to sing? Oh, you came up in the church? Okay. Automatically we start connecting. Sometimes I'd even go like when, when I would, uh, you know, work with any of the artists and say, hey, man, take it back to the church, meaning take it back to the beginning, take it back to where before you got your record deal, that. So I try to put that kind of feeling into the filmmaking, the storytelling. 
Yeah, different, different artists come to d- different directors for different things. Do you think ultimately once you are established, they, I don't know if they would word it this way, but the thing that artists come to Paul Hunter for is a little bit of that take it back to the church feeling? No, no, more about like, it, it was just more like I, I, I always wanted to make things feel larger than life, you know, and, and big and visual and cinematic. So for me, it was like elevating, elevating more, bringing more to what you think you would see. And, you know, I base a lot of my ideas around movies or, you know, paintings or just whatever that inspired me at the time and just lifting that up. Because when I, when I I first remember working with, uh, with Puff and, he called me after I did the Eric Badu video. I mean, every artist called me after I did that video. And one of the things that he said was, um, and I didn't really know how to talk to him. Or I didn't really, I was really, I was trying to communicate with him that what I'm going to bring to the, to his project is more, more than what you've seen before. So I, I brought this like huge DVD player to his office and I had like a, uh, you know, a bunch of Terry Gilliam films in there. Uh, and I locked, I, you know, plugged it into his, he was like, what the, what the hell is that, man? But what the DVD players were back in the time, uh, no, not DVD, Laserdisc. Yeah. The time that you could freeze frame the visual, the image, and it would look beautiful. And so that's how I wanted to communicate to him that, you know, you know, the color printers weren't, you know, very good back then. So it's just like, dude, check this out, check this out. You know, just showing these like really rich, beautifully lit scenes. So that's how I would communicate in terms of advertising. I guess I would imagine it's the same thing. I mean, you tell me that you, you create all of this stuff for your clients and become the directors. Yeah. What are you asking? No, I'm asking you, tell me, what, what do you think we do? Oh, what, is, what do people come for when they come for Paul Hunter? I, well, I mean, I think I can answer that as a junior copywriter to whatever extent I got to make the decision of who the director would be was, you know, especially at that time, you were established as a commercial director, but you were so famous for these music videos that were so cinematic and that could sort of pull through a visual concept, you know, at this really like sort of in almost like a dream state. And I think this was overlapping with the time in advertising where people were trying to figure out how to do things that were a little bit more special than, you know, two people talking and one person sets up a punchline and the other person delivers the punchline and then the logo comes up. And, you know, so just thinking about things a little bit more kind of, um, you know, artistic and whims, whimsical and cinematic and those sort of those overlaps, I can, I can sort of recall that was the attraction of you was like, you know, it's, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, to boil it down to like, he'll bring a music video mm-hmm. sensibility to a commercial, but I think mm-hmm. it's more like, Hey, this guy's brain works a different way because he came up through music videos. So he's going to solve this a different way. Yeah. It's, it's, it's challenging because there's, there's so much more freedom when you're, you're shooting a music video because you know, the music artists, at least when I was working, they're just kicking back going, okay, this is what you want to do. Sure. You know, let me know when you, ready and I'll come out and do it you know I'll come out and perform and so a lot of times we'll shoot you know three quarters of the day just shooting a bunch of stuff that you know cutaways right. and so when you're working that way 
you can really create, have a point of view and really create some interesting stuff and move fast and, and, you know, just be inspired. Whereas when you come into the advertising world, it's very structured. You're working with, you know, then an agency who needs to, you know, certain things that they have to communicate. And so you know, sometimes the magic gets lost and it's a little frustrating, but, you know, I'm grateful and, you know, that I've been able to, you know, build a, build a career and build a business, yeah. you know, in the industry. And I've been really lucky to work with some great uh, creative directors and art directors and producers who have said, yo, man, do your thing, man, go for it. And that's been great. That's really been great. We'll talk about that transition. First, I wanted to ask you, you know, on the music video side, the artists that you have worked with over the years have such strong creative points of view. Um, Just talk about the art form of knowing when to push your vision versus knowing when to get out of the way of their vision. Oh, well, I mean, you know, a big part of, for me, a big part of directing is listening. And if you listen, like even before you get an idea, you know, you have to sort of listen to what's going on around you and listen and watch. And so I'm a very observant person. So just by nature, just coming up how, how I came up, you know, you have to listen, you have to watch, you have to be on edge in order to survive, you know? So, um, that I always bring that that's the core of who where I started at least is listening and trying to understand what is it that they're trying to say what is the inspiration what's the nugget of where this all started and then from there listening to what they have to say hearing them out and then finding a good place where we can visually bring it to life and I had a great experience with Marilyn Manson doing that. Yeah. I was going to, I mean, maybe your answer is Marilyn Manson over, you know, a career spanning over a hundred videos. Is there looking back, is there one artist in particular who it feels like is <clears throat> the most of a kindred spirit creatively, where it just feels like you guys are sort of sharing a brain? Um, there was a few of, there's a few of, few of them. I wouldn't say I'd go anywhere in between, uh, Pharrell, um, who I've worked with a bunch of years, Uh, Puff, Um, because his his thought was always, you know, go hard, you know, don't leave anything on the, you know, on the table. And so that was a lot of, you know, that was a great collaboration because it was always about next level, next level, next level which I don't know how your experience was when you actually got a chance to meet him and talk to him, but that's what he was all about initially when we first started, when we first started working together. And he challenged me a lot too. He would say like, dude, I can hire anybody. You know, I got Michael Bay calling me right now. You better come with the shit. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? And that was, you know, it was kind of, it was great in a way. At, At times it was frustrating, but you know, it was great because, you know, he was, he was pushing to say, you know, dude, it's tough out here for me. If I don't deliver, if I, if I, if I hire you and if I don't deliver and this makes me look bad, I'm trying to win. So that's definitely listening to him. And we didn't always get along. Uh, but when we found some good things, we made some good things together. Uh, but I would say creatively, what I love about working with Marilyn Manson on Dope Show is that 
he was trying to take, you know, religion, uh, politics, his own personal struggles and put it out there and not be apologetic about it. And it was the same thing that I was feeling too, because growing up, you know, going to church, I already kind of had this like guilt or, oh man, I'm shooting like this, like secular music. I'm putting this like devil stuff out in the world. <laughs> and, like, and a lot of times I would avoid my talking to my grandmother. Wow. Because uh, that's why I used to, you know, that's who, who took me to church and I would be nervous. Like, oh man, grandma, are you, are you, you know, do you know what I'm doing? But I kind of wrestled with, wrestled with it a lot, dude. The irony of that is that even though it's secular, you know, when you're touched by music, it's like the most spiritual shared experience that any human can have. And I try to look at it that way and try to bring uh, some sort of a, a part of who I am to it, no matter what. And Madsen was definitely a big sort of question whether I would work for him, work with him or not, because, you know, I was like, when he called me at the time, you know, I remember getting a lot of calls from you know, the hip hop guys, and I'm like, dude, you working with that devil worshiper? <laughs> I'm like, no, man, it's just, you know, he's, a, he's an artist. This is a, you know, he's just creating this thing. So we'll, we'll find, uh, we'll find, you know, the, the humanity in it. We'll find the, the story in it and tell his story. And it worked, man. That thing blew up. Oh, when you're, as you look back on, you know, shooting dope show or, the hypnotized video or the lady marmalade video. I mean, you give me that memory of that Erica Badu video, um, which you remember just a little bit better than that Volkswagen campaign we worked on. You're like the wind blew in and then the sun came through. Like, you know, when you look back on some of those all time great videos that, you know, redefine the genre, could you feel it on the set that something special was happening or do you sort of never really know until the thing goes viral? Um, sometimes you feel it because you're watching, you know, I would watch what was going on and, you know, you're talking to a lot of, you're talking to a lot of people and you can kind of see what's happening in television. You can see what's happening in music. And one thing I will say, and this is what I think that the ad industry has to catch up to and definitely Hollywood has to catch up to. You have to be able to get out of the way of inspiration at the time. When it happens, you have to move on it. And the reason why I feel that we get so many more breakthroughs in music is because they're expressing it freely. It's coming out. It's not, it's not uh, held back as much. And I would say, okay, for pop music, yes, because it's all like a formula. But the music artists that can, you know, I've watched these guys, and I've said this before, they're in the clubs, they're in the streets, they're watching what's going on. They go up and they write a song record it the next day and put it out and you feel it feel like the surge of people move because it's it's speaking to people in the moment if we could do that in advertising we could do that in in storytelling i mean could you imagine like the response so um yeah at times you could feel it because you know what's going on and you you know, you can see the difference in what's out there and what people are talking about and then what's coming. So in, in advertising, that magic is it's capable of happening. It most often happens when you have a agency and a client and a director who all want the exact same thing. And that's just a really hard 
mix to find, you know, that happens a couple times in your career where everyone wants the exact same thing. Everyone has the exact same threshold for risk. Um, and, but do you think, I mean, as you, you've shot a hundred videos and you've shot a hundred commercials, I mean, is the difference, does it just boil down to like one is allowed to be a creative expression without an agenda and the other is a creative expression with an agenda. And that second one is always just going to have a, a higher, you know, level of difficulty. Yeah. Well, you know, I think about like, uh, you know, Crispin and Wyden, you know, it's Crispin. I mean, they, they had that kind of attitude for sure. You know, and I remember when I, you know, the early days working with them, they weren't, it seemed like they weren't afraid. And you can tell me they weren't afraid to lose a client. They weren't afraid to lose a client. And as a result, the clients that they attracted were on the same page with them and wanted the same thing that they wanted and had the same, you know, risk threshold. So it's almost like, you know, they got what they attracted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought, I thought there was some great work that yeah. came. Yeah. Uh, you were a big part of that. I'm going to ask you uh, the same lame Chris Farley interview question I asked you when I met you as a junior copywriter in 2005 before we sort of transition into the advertising side of the conversation, which is, can you just tell me a memory of working with the Notorious B.I.G.? Oh, oh wow. The nicest guy. Um, you know, that's all I remember. I didn't really know him that well. You know, the time that I met him, he just, he, you know, I met him the night before we were filming. And, you know, super, you know, just super chill and funny. And, you know, he loved what he did. And he just, you know, loved, from what I could tell, he loved being an artist. And the first conversation that I had with him, I remember going into his trailer, we shot, we shot part of that music video in Hover City. Uh, I think near where 72 and Sunny is in that area. It's just warehouses. They were, you know, it's just a bunch of empty warehouses and we used that as a soundstage at the time. And I just remember going his, in his trailer and the dude was just like eating a bowl of cereal. And <laughs> we kicked back and just talked and uh, just laughed. And he was just like, yeah, I got you. Whatever you need, I got you. Yeah, you got it? Okay, cool. And here's the thing. Making doing the, the music video was hell. It was hell. The very first shot, we were shooting the boat sequence, and we had uh, Puck wanted a cigarette boat, and there were no cigarette boats in LA. And I didn't want to go to Miami because I wasn't sure about the production in Miami, and I knew that I can control the production in LA. So we fought, went back and forth, back and forth on shooting the shooting hypnotize in California versus Miami because he wanted that cigarette boat to like get off the waves. Somehow they figured out how to get a cigarette boat. I don't even remember where he came from, whether it was Mexico. I have no idea, but they got it up there. And so we get there and we want to shoot the we want to shoot first thing in the morning when the water is calm. And before all of the rest of the you know, people that are sailing around in Santa Monica are just, they're just not there. We get there and the guy who owned the boat took one look at Biggie and said, 
hell no. And literally just basically said, he's not driving this boat. These guys aren't driving this boat. Didn't fit the profile. And I watched, and I was like, man, this is a great way to start the day. And I watched Puff and Puff just goes, dude, I paid for this. I'm driving this boat. And they just walk on. <laughs> they walk on. Got in. We let we strapped down the cameras and rolled out. It's crazy. And the crazy thing about that dude was, I know I'm going on with this story. No, man, take all the time you need. The crazy thing about that is, we had a camera underneath. We had a camera strapped to the top of the hood of the boat. Big and Puff have never, you know done a boat man and the captain of the boat was he said i'm not i'm going on with you you're not going on without and you know it's like weed and all the smoke it was just like and so he hit it man and we we're like cruising along and puff's like this is not fast enough and like we're going pretty fast he goes no it's not fast enough i need to feel this and he just throttled it back and we were just flying like the boat's just like wow i'm at the bottom of the boat inside Inside the boat, underneath the camera, I'm looking at my uh, cameraman, where every time we hit a wave, dude, we're flying up into the air like this, hitting my head, it's hitting the top, I'm underneath, hitting the top, boom, boom. I'm just praying to God, praying that they're not gonna run into another boat. We did that for about an hour. Crazy thing is, fast forward, it all worked out. And the last conversation that I got a chance to have with them, I, you know, I cut like a minute and a half with my uh, editor and we, we cut it to uh, Firestarter, Prodigy, just to kind of flip, flip the vibe. No one had done that. It was like, man, let's cut this. So we didn't even cut the video to hypnotize. We cut it to Firestarter. Wow. So it, like, it was like a contrast. It was like, like this. Because that was the thing. It's like, for me, it was like, you go against the grain. you like, do this and that's what like creates a drama so it's like it creates emotional drama if you go against it so that's what we cut it to and i showed it to i showed him like a minute and a half and he had a little bit of hypnotize in it and then it broke down a prodigy and he looked at it i showed it to him in the beverly hills hotel he looked at it and goes that shit is hot <laughs> i was nervous at first because like man is he gonna is he gonna want this like rock stuff on this thing that's hot. And that was it. You know, we never, you know, he didn't see the video. After right, I was going to say, this must be a few weeks before he was killed. No, this is the night before. Well, yeah. And the thing, uh, but it was the first time I, I, I got a chance to see him smile and I got a chance to see how happy he was with the visual. But then after that was the first time I remember in, uh, as it was happening in advertising that, you know, everyone was asking for like uh, this kind of like mix of like, you know, like culture, like mix of music, you know, remix, but remix rock, remix hip hop. And that's when that whole thing started. Yeah. So I felt very, you know, it was cool to be a part of that. You know? But I remember pushing that. Yeah, I think, that's a, I think that was a big part of the attraction of the advertising world to you, among other things is, you know, you build this reputation in the music video world. And part of it is just thinking about, 
you know, how to sequence shots or how to edit to different pieces of music, these tricks that we don't, people as viewers, we don't realize you're doing it. Well, because dude, I never wanted to be put in a box. Right. So like when, when I, when I first tried to get into, you know, get a job doing music videos, I didn't want to do the hip hop because it was like, all right, of course the black director can do hip hop videos. I went over and I went to Warner brothers and made a, I got a meeting to do some alternative stuff. Right. As I wanted to, I wanted to be a, a contrast because if the, if the, if the English brothers was doing the hip hop stuff, then why can't I just go over and do all of the REMs and you know all of that alternative music, right. rock music? And so when I got to Manson, when I finally sort of got a chance to get to Manson, that's what was exciting because it was like, and that's what he was excited about. He wanted to Manson wanted to know what. Buster Rhymes was talking about what he was doing, what his vibe was. Right. And so we were bringing it back and forth, which was great with MTV at the time because they would play hip hop rock, hip hop rock. They like mixed it. So you really got two cultures like firing back and forth. And that's like the, that's what's like the, the, the beauty of like mixing and clashing cultures is it brings that energy out. And so for me, it's like, I always, I never wanted to be put in a box. So it was again, going into advertising. And first of all, and I've, ne I've never really seen any brothers directing in advertising, maybe one or two. It's been a long road to get into the game. Uh, and also what's, what's been a blessing and helped ha help that happen was, you know, the hip hop artists taking deals, doing deals with Sprite, Coke, and Pepsi and being, you know, having the, those guys and guys like you, you know, go, oh, these, these guys who grew up watching music videos, say, hey, I want him. And, you know, slowly you start to saw this like wave of new creative types from music come into the business. Right. The talent was changing and the decision makers were changing. Yeah, um, we still have well, a long ways to go. For sure. And we'll talk about that. Uh, what was the biggest learning curve as you made that transition into the commercial world early on? Um, just working with, uh, you know, within 30 seconds. Right. You know, and that was the whole thing is, you know, like, no, this isn't a music video. You can't just shoot for four minutes. You have to tell the story in 30 seconds. And I would say, but yeah, but I can shoot, um, I can shoot two minutes worth of material and I can grind it down to 30 seconds because that's what we do in music videos. You know, you got to prove it on paper first. You can't, you can't go into this production with, you know, a hundred shots. You have to go into this production with 25 shots. You're going to tell with 30. And so that was a little, that was a little, a huge learning curve. And, and it felt too regimented. And I, I think that I didn't do good work when I worked within, oh, here's 25 shots. Because there's a, there's a, and I figured it out along the way. You just cover, you get in, you cover the scenes and you sort of, you don't approach it like you're doing an, an 30 second ad. You approach it like you're doing a short film. And once you think of it like that, then your brain starts to figure out how to tell the story. Let's and, talk about, well, let's talk about the brain figuring out how to tell the story. I mean, you, you famously directed Nike Freestyle, which is a spot that essentially, you know, turns the sounds of the game of basketball, dribbling, squeaking of shoes into a music video. Um, when you get a script like Nike Freestyle that's so purely visual, 
do you instinctively see what you want in your head immediately or does your creative process require more internal debate than that? No, that was instant. Uh, I saw that clearly. I just finished doing a D'Angelo video untitled with where it was just a simple backdrop. It's just black and it was just D'Angelo and camera wrapped around him. And so I was already inspired, you know, by just doing really simple, um, showing, you know, people in a very simple way and capturing like emotion in a very simple way. So with the freestyle, you know, that I was, that was like already bubbling inside of me. The initial script was, uh, it was all these players across the United States and living room, backyards, streets. So it was more, you know, it was like real. They even at one point talked about, oh, the ball's going to go around the world. And for me, I was just kind of locked into, no, we're just going to make it more theatrical. Uh, you co-founded Pretty Bird in 2008 with your partner, Kirsten Emhoff. What was the decision process that led you to want to start your own company at that time? Um, failing in uh, doing a, a feature film, you know, my first feature failed at that. And the, uh, you know, the movie industry at the time before that was getting, you know, tons of scripts and, you know, the head of studios picking up my calls and I call, you know, boom, what, what you need, you know? And then after I, after I, I made Bulletproof Monk, you know, didn't work, you know, wasn't a good film, nothing, silence, no calls returned. So, you know, it was a reality check for me. And I, so at that point I said, you know what? I know that I have talent. I'm not gonna let an industry define my talent or decide when I can work and when I can't work or define my future. So at that point, I just decided to, you know what, I know this, you know, I could see that there was young people coming into the business that thought like me, there were, you know, the agencies were like, you know, really wanting to work with me. And I just said, I'm going to just define my future. And at the time, you know, all these production companies were calling me to come join them. I say, that's weird. They're calling me to come join them. I, why am I going to go, you know, age out with these companies? I might as well just do my own thing. In both videos and commercials, so much of your career has been defined by commanding memorable performances from, you know, world famous athletes, world famous artists. Can you just, you know, what are some patterns that you've seen over the years? Can you share some successful tenets for how to make a giant celebrity do what you want them to do on a set? Hmm. Uh, well, the first thing you can, the first thing that I sort of do is know that their ego is huge and, <laughs> and needs to be fed. And the reason why they're celebrities is because they're really good at what they do. They have an incredible drive and an incredible talent and powerful people behind them. So at the end of the day, they want to protect that image and they want to make sure that that comes across like they're not being a sellout and coming into this film and they're gonna, you know, they're gonna come off looking great. So you keep that in mind and then you go, okay, that's sometimes it's hard to say that, you know, when they first walk onto set, but they're there because they want to be there and probably getting paid a lot of money. So I try to at least get to get to them early on 
just to take the edge off, give them some assurance that they're going to look great and that I'm going to make sure that they're not going to do anything to play themselves. And, you know, at least they're going to look like within their, their, their lane that they've created. And that's a big part of it. Yeah. Um, Amir, Amir gave me a great memory that, that I wonder if you remember shooting um, a project together for Adidas called The Brotherhood. And it, was, oh, wow. it starred uh, T-Mac, Kevin Garnett, mm-hmm. uh, Tim Duncan, uh, Tracy McGrady. I said Tracy McGrady. Um, who else? Dwight Howard. And, uh, and you needed to get some, some footage of them playing. So you shot for like an hour and you just could not get these guys to play hard. They were just kind of, they were, they were dogging it. They were half-assing it. So Amir said, you know, finally after an hour, you're just like, look, cut, let me get playback. And you gathered them around the monitor. You're like, guys, you look like you're done playing. So if you're done, I'm done. We can just wrap it right now. Before we're done though, I just want to show you what you look like. Cause you look like shit. And you're going to look like shit on national TV. So we can be done uh, right now or you guys can give me 10 hard minutes. And he said that speech yielded like uh, game seven of the NBA finals. Uh, Do you recall that? Yeah. 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 I use that a lot. Different situations. Yeah, for sure. Hey, I just saw this other thing that homegirl did. She looks great. Or I just saw this other thing that, you know, you better, you, you're going to come out. Everyone's going to see this. You better, you better show up. Right. <laughs> yeah, first you give assurances, and then if they don't perform, then it's like you yeah, guilt was, your ego in a different way. Yeah, cut off that other answer that I gave you. That was like the too thought provoking, too. Yeah, no, I usually just get right to it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, after working with every major artist and athlete in the world, pretty much, is there anyone who still maybe intimidates you or you're starstruck by? Um, not really, dude. I mean, I, people are people. You know, I, I, you know, when you said, hey, what does your mom do? What does your dad do? Where did you come from? And I said, oh, my dad was an ex-con, you know, you know, I used to visit him in Folsom and San Quentin. I mean, just start with that. Nothing else matters. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Nobody's intimidating. Uh, you know, you, we talked about getting pigeonholed. And one way that you haven't allowed yourself to be pigeonholed is you didn't become the music video commercial director. Some things that you've done have been incredibly visual, but you've also done a lot of great dialogue ads and comedic ads. I think about, you know, maybe the best example is the T-Mobile Super Bowl spot featuring Drake. Uh, mm-hmm. What's your memory of that shoot and how that came together? Okay. Well, you got to throw the Bird King thing in there. Man. Stuff of Legends? Yeah. That thing is funny. That's the least yeah. pigeonholed spot. And actually, I would really invite people. That's, that's where my brother met you. That's one of the best spots he's ever made uh, when he was at, yeah. on the agency side. Yeah. Yeah, we should talk about that one because Drake yeah, is kind of like a lane in music. Right. Um, but I, I'm happy to talk about Drake because it's, you know, he's popular. No, but, fuck that. Let's talk about Stuff of Legends. All right, Stuff of Legends. Well, first of all, the script was awesome. My name is Steve Weller. I'm the BK Chicken Changer. It's my job to get BK Chicken Fries in the car when it comes in for a pit stop. I grab 12 pieces of all-white meat, get the sauce open, make sure he's got it going. I wish we had had that back when I was racing. They used to hand me the chicken on a pole through the window. Now, this was quite an invention we had here. You see how we put this chicken on that pole? And then they'd run that car in there real fast, and they'd just step back, stick that chicken right in there in your face. Oh, it's a mess. Then they came up with a drumstick. They usually pass it through to the driver through the window, and he'd grab it the best way he could and try to munch it away. Get the grease all over your hands, and it goes right to the steering wheel. 
Well, then they incorporated the uh, chicken sandwich. And, uh, you know, that didn't work out at all. Absolutely love it. It's a great job. Can't, can't ask for more. You got to be in first. The need for chicken fries. I feed the need. The need for chicken fries. You know, it's the, the writing, the creative on that script was great. And just the fact that the absurdity of what these people were talking about and the absurdity of, you know, hey, this is, this is how we feed ourselves to get through the day. And that creative of having like, I can't stop driving. I can't get out of my car. I can't stop because we know that. It was built in a lot of truths. And if you build things in truths, it can be funny, especially when you, when you flip it. But in terms of, for me, like doing that spot was important because it's NASCAR. Right. You know, and it's racing. And so being able as a man of color to work in that genre was important. To sh and also to show that I understand humor. We all understand humor. I mean, your brother created it, you know, and it's, you know, coming up doing, say, doing, you know, getting a break in the sort of the music side, with Nike and all that. And it was crazy because I'm going to say some stuff, but it was in that sort of humor, visual humor, humor and storytelling is still sort of pulled to the side away from a lot of people. And that area definitely needs to be penetrated and done with different types of people. And it's very, very segregated. And so it's important to me that I get in there and nail it. And we nailed that. What do you think is, is a key to a successful process where the agency and the production company and the client are all satisfied with the outcome? Or I mean, maybe yeah. even a different way to answer it is like, when it goes wrong, how does it most often go wrong? Um, well, when it goes wrong, often it's just because no one's on the same page and no one is telling the truth about what they really need or, you know, from a production standpoint, most of the times we can get it right because we know that, hey, you got two days to do something, you have so much money, you make the deals with the crews or whoever's going to do it and try to bring as much as you can from a production place and hire good ADs and schedule your day out, right? Prep, making sure that, you know, everything that we've talked about and everything and we're agreeing upon it and then talking to having that relationship where we can call like creative is up on the phone, like, yo, I'm not doing this or, hey, what do you think about this idea? Yeah, what do you think about this? And just becoming that brotherhood on the project as opposed to here's a production company, here's the agency, here's a client, everyone is separated and they were dancing around each other, you know, within 10 hours on a production day. That's where it can go wrong if you're not talking. So I really, I usually, I try to get in there, connect, and that's why I try to connect with you guys and really just have that camaraderie. So when we go out and make, make something, it's, uh, you know, we're doing it as friends. Right. Before agencies hire a director, they ask multiple directors to write director's treatments and that process has remained largely unchanged for decades. Is it a flawed process? Um, I, 
I mean, you guys have, you have to answer that. I, I, I feel like right now, I feel like, yeah, you go through the treatment process, but at the end of the day, it should be, um, I feel like it should be like, hey, call a couple guys up and talk about them. What do you think? Oh, I want to do this. I want to do that. Okay. You get a feeling and you roll with it. Uh, but I feel like the, the treatment process is, uh, you know, it's just kind of this contract in a way or yeah. just something for people to look at because they're not sure. But I think that at least where I am right now, that any creative can call me directly. They don't have to call Kirsten or my reps or anything. Just pick up the phone, call me, send me an email and say, hey, I want to make something. Right. Let's figure it out and take it from there. I mean, I'm sure, you know, I mean, look at Spike. He does some great stuff. Spike Jones, he does some great stuff. I don't think he's writing treatments. No, I mean, I think there's some people, in, and in a lot of cases, you probably fit into this category where, you know, they they sort of sit in a in a tier above the requirement to, you know, be triple bid and, you know, throw a director's treatment in a hat with five other guys. But by the way, sometimes I'm sure that does happen to you. And it's probably against the same four guys who you've been competing with for 10 years. Um, so, I mean, I do from the agency side, I do think it's a flawed process in a number of ways. Maybe the, not the least of which is if I read five treatments and we hire one guy or, or woman, it's almost going to be impossible not to see something in another treatment and not have it inform the thing that we make with the person we didn't hire. And I don't know how to fix that. That's happened before for sure. I've seen my ideas and stuff and, and then I've seen where creators are coming and say, hey, what do you think about this idea? Like, yeah, it's actually pretty good. Yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, it's not a perfect process by any means. What, you know, different directors form their own relationship with different agencies. You know, for so long, you had a really great relationship with Crispin when all the leadership was there in the mid 2000s. What's your thought on giving the benefit of the doubt to a bad board that comes from a great agency versus pursuing a great board from maybe like an unknown agency. Okay. Um, I have, I have a different outlook about working and I'll tell you why it's because of how I grew up. So I don't look at everything as this has to be the perfect situation because growing up, it wasn't the perfect situation for me. So I, I, I look at things from, okay, what can this be? This could be better. Let's talk about it. You, you kind of got to, but getting the truth, what's the truth? What is it that we're really trying to do? What are we really trying to accomplish? Because there's a thing where you can shoot it a certain way and then the agency, they have to be honest. A lot of times, sometimes I feel like they're not honest they get the footage and they go and they make something completely different or they cut it clean or they cut it safe because they're trying to save the relationship with their client, but the client hasn't served it and kind of gets messy and play yourself and you have that thing out there. You're like, oh, he did that. Well, you know, so I, I sometimes I like going for like just the vibe, of, you know, but it's right now in, in my position, um, it's important for me to do uh, good work in a creative space 
in the area of storytelling. That's really important to me. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of, you know, we have a group of directors at Pretty Bird who, where they are in their career, they may be, you know, more in a position where they can just sit back and wait for the perfect board. And I think that helps build their career because it's all about, um, you know, they're just starting out or they're just growing their career. So they have to develop that reputation. So for me, I'm, I'm more of like, I'm sort of trying to position myself where like, all right, support, support the new filmmakers as much as possible and, you know, just let them go support. And I also just sort of watch it, but then sort of guide over here and try to do, you know, something strong. So it says, Hey, still, he still has it. And then do something in the story space. Because as you know, everything is, you know, it's like content. Like what does content mean? It's not even about spots anymore. It's just about cool things, cool visuals and cool stories. It's all sort of crisscrossing now. So I feel like going into the TV and film space and more in a TV space can be a pure expression if you're writing. Because, you know, and then the creatives are now looking at what's cool. What are they creating? Oh, let's get with, let's get with uh, Paul because he created this dope show. Or you can look at these characters. And sometimes you can't do that when you're just on a treadmill, just doing other people's stuff all the time. I'm going to come back to that thought. But you did mention something about kind of great footage, you know, edited in such a way that it doesn't do the footage justice. Do you think in the standard commercial process, directors are cut out of the editing process too early? 100%. And I understand why is because, you know, there's deadlines and sometimes an agency may not get the green light to do a project, you know, until the last minute and they have to put it out in the air. So they have to move fast. They don't have time to go back and forth. But you know, if you can let the if you can let the director sit with the footage and play with it and flip it around and really massage it and then say, all right, check this out. This is this is how this comes together. Because a lot of times when you're you have a board or you're working with someone, you see stuff in a moment and you're cutting around and you know, you're trying different things, like what we did on Stuff of Legends. That was a board, but it wasn't specific. It wasn't like we didn't shoot it like to the exact storyboards. You know, your brother is like, do your thing, man. Just like, we come into, we come into like, what works best with, uh, I think, the creative process is, I don't, you, you come into a scene and before you start the scene, you go, okay, what do we want to get out of this scene? What's the, what's the thing that we need to get out? You check that box, okay, that's the communication, we want to get that out. And then we go shoot it. And we shoot it, you know, a few different ways and we, you know, pull out whether it's performance and we shoot it and then we have it. And then maybe there's some moment in there where we get a couple other angles, we tried the, a couple of different reads, and then you have like some arc in the story. And sometimes that can't be boarded. That's just a feeling of just trusting like, hey, what are we trying to get out of the scene? We want to see character arc through this. All right. You, you brought it up a little bit, but, you know, in addition to directing, you know, a big part of your responsibility now as the owner of your own production company is identifying director talent to be part of your company. Uh, what do you look for in directors who you decide to put on at Pretty Bird? Unapologetic. Hmm. 
just don't give a fuck. I mean, I think that's where you can sort of see a voice, a point of view. And, uh, you know, if you know that they, if you can see someone that's expressing a, a point of view, whatever it is, uh, it can be about whatever. And they're trying to say something in a work or they're trying to inspire something. Uh, you know, that's, that's what it is. It doesn't even have to be the most complete work. You know, a lot of times uh, companies and directors, you know, they're looking for, a lot of companies are looking for, I need the perfect reel, you know, so that I can go out and push. But I don't see it that way. I know sometimes the reps, they're a little bit more nervous because they know what's out there and they know how, how like, the agencies are feeling about who they're going to go with. And, you know, a lot of times the reps are like, well, I can only go so many times to an agency with this person before they just, you know, before they stop trusting me. You know, so, but I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that you just have to go with someone who has a point of view and passionate and they're going to work through that situation. It's a big learning curve. It's a big relationship curve to get, to, to get through, you know? Well, and also, I mean, I've, I feel like directors are some of the most competitive people I've ever met in my life. I mean, is, is it ever challenging to be a director managing directors? Yeah, I try to step out of it and just, you know, uh, I think, you know, the team is really good at it, you know, and I just try to step out of it and just be neutral about it because it can be, it can be hard. And I think also too, it's like, I feel like directors can look at say, me and go, okay, he's, he's done this. So where do I fit in? Do I, am I fitting in his and Paul's category or I'm in my own category or Paul has gone only gone so far? How, you know, am I going to only be able to go that far? Cause that's how I used to think, you know, like when back in the days when, you know, David Fincher, you know, was at propaganda and Michael Bay was at propaganda like way back when you think, like, oh, I want to go to that company because look at their careers. And so I would imagine that some of the incoming directors are looking at how far can they go. Right. But I, I think that, and here's like where, here's where the different companies have different uh, reputations, you know, that can say, okay, well, this company can get you this type of work. This company over here can get you this type of work. This company over here. But I think ultimately that's true that, that there is a sort of because of their relationships. But if you're working with creative or director who is just, I'm going down this lane and I'm going to stay on that lane and I'm going to stay on that lane and I'm going to get there. That's, that's who I like to work with. And I've, you know, there's been some directors that started with pretty bird and left because they felt like, man, I can't get there fast enough. But if you stay in that lane, we'll get there. And that's part of it, right? I mean, there's no one who's going to start a business. And I think part of success is you're going to help make someone so successful that they're going to get poached by another company. I mean, it's not going to happen with everybody, but that's, that's part of how we define a successful company, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, sure. I also think it's interesting to look at Pretty Bird in the context of the past six months and the nation's reckoning with systemic racism and, and, um, you're hearing a lot of agencies and holding companies commit to combating systemic racism and um, creating, you know, more equitable conditions. 
um, and more equitable hiring practices. This isn't a big problem for Pretty Bird because you built your company, it seems like with the understanding that, you know, diversity is a competitive advantage. Um, as you observe, you know, the events of the past six months, I guess I would say on a societal level, but even on an industry level, are you seeing substantive change? Are you feeling hopeful about substantive change? Um, I don't know yet. I mean, this is my biggest fear is that everyone will get excited about change and talk about it. And then about you know, six, six months from now, it falls back into the same sort of rhythm because it's a rhythm, like life is a rhythm. So once you're, you're like on one thing and then you just sort of go to what you've been used to doing. And that's a big part of it, um, the way I think about it. So it really is going to take a lot of focus and a lot of hard work and, can, and people continuing to talk about this and not letting it go. Um, so, I mean, it's, to me, it's, it's, I'm just starting to see, you know, of course, you know, you get a call and, I, you know, I get a call from my agent, hey, man, are, are we good? You know, or, you know, get a call from like a bunch of people. Hey, are we good? Are we good? Are we good? What does that mean? Are we good? What do you think? What does that mean? It just means like, am I supporting you? Or, you know, are you getting everything you want? Or, you know, have we done right by you? You know, and that's just people, you know, just companies just checking the box and making sure that they're, you know, saying and doing the right thing. At the end of the day, it's all about doing. Everybody can talk. Let's see, let's see this thing happen. So, and you know, here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you talk about hiring, you know, making, hiring, you know, different people and, and creating diversity within the community, that's a huge learning curve because it's about opportunity. And we all know that we didn't start coming in ready and right and ready to go. I mean, somebody took a chance on us and there's a lot of bumps and bruises along the way. And, you know, they stayed with us and they stuck with us and kind of broke through. That is a big part of us is patience and training, making a conscious effort to go, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start, you know, hiring, you know, opening up my eyes to hire and give different people breaks. But don't, when they screw up, don't just cut them off and say, oh, that's it. I knew that it wasn't going to work. Because it's a huge learning curve. And it's about the at-bats. You know, how many at-bats are you going to get? You're, you know, at some point, you're going to get better. Right. It's changing the criteria for what makes someone qualified. And it's maybe rethinking, you know, success and failure early on. It's setting people up for success instead of sort of sabotaging them by using old models to try to evaluate new talent. Yeah, and you have to be. You, these companies have to have a lot of patience. They have to. They have to. You have to have more conversations, longer conversations. Slow down a little bit. Let's all slow down and um, understand each other. We end every episode with the same three questions. I've had to modify them for you a little bit as a director. Uh, the first question is. Paul Hunter, what is the word or phrase of advertising or production jargon that makes your skin crawl the most? Fix it in post. <laughs> Don't worry about it. We're going to fix it in post. <laughs> Second question is, what is the most fucked up thing you've ever heard a client or creative director say to you in a pre-pro meeting? 
I didn't know you were black. <laughs> that a, was that a good thing or a bad thing? It's terrible. Right. And that, you know, I mean, I've, you know, that's the thing that I faced my, you know, a lot of my career in advertising. Because before when, um, you know, before Zoom, or when you're first getting in, you're doing conference calls with people, with people, and you know, they don't know who you are. I mean, some of like the, the hipsters, they know who you are coming out of music, but when you're just talking to people and you're just on the phone and you're having, and just walking into a room and people are like kind of double, like, oh, that's you? So people have preconceived thoughts in their minds about who they're working with, who they want to hire. There must be a side of that that's fulfilling though, because you, you stated early on that one of the goals for your career was always trying to figure out how to, you know, kind of be unpredictable to not make, you know, quote unquote, black content, you know, to do the, the, the music video for REM to do stuff of legends for NASCAR. You know, do you think any of it was the fact that people look at your reel and your reel doesn't speak to the fact that a black guy must've made all this? Well, this was before, right? This is before. And he was like, his name's Paul Hunter. He must be a, just a white guy from Idaho. Yeah, exactly. Well, here's the thing, man, is it's not that I didn't want to make or don't want to make black content. It was, I wanted to be able to do all types of content. Right. And go back and forth the way everyone else is doing it. And that's where I felt like the issue was. So for me, it's like I needed to prove that I could go into this space and do the work just as good as anybody else. So that way, later on, the next guy can come in and the walls are broken down. And that was, that's been my entire drive is to like rewrite the script. And the final question we call the one that got away. What was your favorite project that you were supposed to direct or that you did direct before it got killed in the 25th hour? And you just, you think about it, it should have lived. It's probably sitting on a hard drive somewhere. And you're like, man, the world needs to see this thing. Well, I've always wanted to do Levi's. And I've gotten so close because here's the thing. Again, it goes, it breaks down to, I got to do a Levi spot. I got to show that I can do this, this thing. Cause that's, that's the thing that everybody, that everybody that's like in that, like lower level, you get that Levi spot, you get the Nike, you get the Levi's. And so, yeah, I got the Nike spot because it's basketball. I can fight for that. And Jimmy Smith now, Jimmy Smith fought for me to get the Nike spot because it was hip hop on the street. They could get that Nike spot. And it was between Spike Jones and I. And, you know, I ended up getting that. very grateful for it. But then getting into the other categories, all right, I need that Levi spot, fashion, all American. I've gotten so close, man. And even, you know, giving me the spot and the next day cancel it. Or giving me the spot and they go, oh, I'm not sure, and no one gets it. Or give me the spot and the next day someone else gets it and they just kind of go back and forth. So, You've wanted a Levi spot so bad that enough time has passed where I don't even think another direct, like when was the last great Levi spot? It's been like a decade since there's been a great Levi spot. It's been a minute. It's been a minute, yeah. And, it, and, and at that point, it's all gone. Right. But again, to me, it's like when I was coming up watching uh, you know, at school and watching commercials before I started working, that was the thing that people were doing. You know, you know, those were the 
everybody used to make spec Levi's commercials. Right. But, you know, now I'm writing my own stuff. You're going to see some stuff uh, that I'm creating and making, you know, on my own. And this, the next thing for me is, is creating, you know, this content, short films, and, and connecting them to brands. And, you know, that's a really hard thing to do. And I'm trying to do that. So if you know someone, I'll send you, I'll send you what I've been working on. That's a deal. I would love to. Uh, and you know, I mean, I started this conversation saying you're the first great example I witnessed of what a director looks like and sounds like. Uh, and to me, man, you're still what a, a director looks like and sounds like all these years later. So it is amazing to talk to you today, man. I appreciate you reaching out. It's good to see you and congratulations on, on everything that you're doing. And I can't wait to see, you know, the future and what you're going to bring. Man. And I'm, I always got your back. Whatever you need, I got your back. Whatever you're trying to build. Bet, man. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much to the great Paul Hunter. Thank you, as always, to the executive producer of this podcast, Jeff Fiorello at JSM Music. And as always, if you're enjoying the pod, please subscribe, rate, review, enjoy the NBA bubble. And until we talk again, peace. Peace.